family. We are back in your ear holes with our second April installment. We are excited about it. This uh, spoiler alert um, topic is a listener request. So uh, definitely if there's something that you want to hear about, let us know. We are happy to talk about what you want to hear about. Uh, but before we kind of get into all of that, uh, as always, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are... Hello, Rebecca. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for coming back with us. Uh, we are in the midst of spring as you're listening to this. It is glorious weather, and um, we are. We want to shout out our patrons. Thank you all to our patrons. You guys are the best as ever. Uh, we are so excited to have you on along on this journey. We could not do this podcast without you. Uh, and you, uh, if you are a patron, you get a monthly additional bonus episode. So make sure that you are uh, checking your patron feed. This month's April's episode is going to be about the Folger Shakespeare Library, which is extremely my jam. Uh, so get ready for that um, and make sure you're paying attention. We've got great May and June episodes uh, in the planning stages. Um, so p- keep uh, looking out for those. We are in the midst of summer and s- our, or spring and planning our summer tours. So if you're going to be in DC again, we sound great on the pod, but we are actually even better in person. Both Becca and myself are out leading tours on the regular, meeting the people and entertaining them all the time. And so we are going to talk about something that was, again, a listener request. And we do occasionally some uh, Wild West topics. We did the California Gold Rush. We did the Donner Party. And this is going to be the gunfight at the OK Corral which is so exciting. So exciting. It was impossible to work on this and not want to just sit down and watch Tombstone, which <laughs> which I definitely ended up I, watching yes. YouTube clips of, even though we had just watched it last year. Um, yeah, this was a, a request from our, our colleague and buddy Kevin, who will be out leading tours with us as well, and who's yes. been a great supporter of the pod. Um, so we're going to talk about the gunfight at the OK Corral. There's a lot that goes into this, and we're going to try to distill it into an hour. But a couple of mm-hmm. things up front one twist it doesn't actually happen at the okay corral so we're just going to go ahead and blow your minds right there yeah um this is a great example of uh we've done some episodes i think that kind of hit on this but trying to separate out like myth and legend from historical fact and even the sort of gunfight at the okay corral is a big part of like the myth building of this incident couple other things, there's a lot of conflicting versions of these events, including the people involved are all going to tell very different versions of what goes down on that day. And then you get into the myth building and the legend building and very unreliable, even sources contemporary to the time. So we're going to do our best to sift fact from fiction. But the truth is, um, it's really difficult to pinpoint a lot of the sort of nitty gritty of what goes down in this sort of 30 second chaos. And then finally, and sort of the context of this episode, we're going to be throwing around the word cowboy. Um, I think when we think cowboy, people sort of think very generally like big hats and cattle and horses and out west. And depending on how many Westerns you watch as a kid, cowboys are often the good guys. Um, In this context of this episode, cowboys typically, when we say the word cowboy, we're talking about outlaws. We're talking about, you know, These are people who are sometimes into shifty cattle um, thieving and that sort of stuff. They're usually the troublemakers. Legit sort of cowmen were usually referred to as cattle herders or ranchers. So even though visually what you think of for cowboy applies to all these people, 
cowboys in this context usually going against the law. Also, for kind of, I hope, some clarity during this episode, we're going to refer to a group of people as the lawmen, which would refer to people who had designations like marshal or sheriff or vaguely some sort of law enforcement role. But that does not always mean that these people were a obeying the law or enforcing the law in any real way. So just because someone is called a marshal or a sheriff doesn't mean that they were not also probably a criminal in some aspects. So all of this is very muddied like in terms of uh, morality and legality. And it is the Wild West and the laws out there um, are changing and shifting um, from a society aspect, right? It's not nearly as regimented as the the East was at that time. So when we're talking about sort of who the criminals are and who the lawmen are, that all gets very complicated and exists in a gray area. But to quote the San Francisco Examiner, cowboys, are the most reckless class of outlaws in that wild country, infinitely worse than the ordinary robber. So if somebody was talking about a cowboy back then, they were not talking about anybody who was obeying the law. I would also like to jump in and say that if your cultural context for this is the movie with uh, Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer, we'll talk in depth about the movie a little bit later on. And it actually does get a surprising amount of detail correct. But I want to state from the outside, one of the things that gets very wrong is the ages of the actors (laughs) vis-a-vis the men involved or women, actually. Um, They're all like... This was a big Hollywood budget movie. All the actors were and remain big names, and they're all considerably older than the people they're supposed to be portraying. Uh, Kurt Russell plays Wyatt Earp. Kurt Russell's in his 40s. Wyatt Earp's like 31. Same thing with uh, his older brother, Virgil. Virg is like 36. And Sam Elliott was 50 when they filmed this. Uh, The female lead, Dana Delaney, was in her mid-30s. She's playing a woman who's supposed to be about 20. So the only person who's remotely close is Val Kilmer. Doc Holliday was 30. Val Kilmer is in his early 30s when they filmed it. He was not, Doc Holliday was not as sickly as portrayed by Val Kilmer. We'll get into that. At this point, yeah. But yes, but this is, you're picturing, if you're thinking of that movie, it's leading you towards sort of older and somewhat more respectable men than perhaps. Perhaps they actually were. And this is actually true, too. Even if you go even further to the 1950s, Gunfight at the OK Corral with Burt Lancaster and Kirk or Kirk Douglas, you know, these guys were actors in their 40s, 50s, playing men who were in their 20s, early 30s. And so a yeah. lot of the movie representations of this definitely skew older. And as we get into... Um, some of the other participants, there were young men as young as 18, 19, 20 in this gunfight. But we keep mentioning this movie, Tombstone. The reason the movie's called Tombstone is this gunfight takes place in Tombstone, Arizona. So um, two, Tombstone, I, I want to say Tucson, Arizona. Tombstone is uh, about 30 miles from the border uh, with Mexico. It's a silver boom town, so that's kind of how it grows up. Uh, we talked a little bit about the gold rush. Here it's silver. It's silver mining. And as we talked about in the gold rush, People literally rush here. When they hear that there's silver in them, our hills, uh, they get to going. And by 1881, it is the largest boom town in the Southwest. About 7,000 white men have populated this area, plus several hundred women, children, Chinese immigrants, Mexican workers and miners. So this is a really, it's not a teeny tiny little hamlet. It's a pretty booming Western frontier town. And by 1881, it's kind of a nice place. They have a bowling alley, ice cream parlor, four churches, a school, and an opera house. 
Uh, also, it is, so it's founded in 1879. This takes place in 1881. So really, Boomtown is literally exactly what's happening. Like, it's two years, and they've built all of this out of nothing because of the silver strikes in the area. There are a lot more men than there are women, which is a pattern that repeats constantly. There's about um, 7,000 white men uh, and the percentage, (laughs) few hundred women. Yeah. The percentage of men to women is like women are like 15% of the population. So it's very low. And a lot of those women are going to be uh, ladies of negotiable affection, which is uh, where you, you know, what you sort of see uh, with boomtowns like this. So there are also, in addition to the opera house and the churches, there are 110 saloons. For, Do the math, for, guys. I know. Like, that's a saloon for every, like, what, 700 people? That's insane. Uh, 14 gambling houses and many, 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 many brothels. So, shootings are kind of common. This is, again, the literally the wild There's, West. there's like, plenty of gunfights. This is not the only yes. one that happens in Tombstone. No, this is just the most famous. Um, Theft of horses and cattle is uh, smuggling of alcohol is a big deal um, across the Mexican border to avoid taxes. Like this is all again. And a lot of these characters are some of them are escaping like a bad situation in the east or trying to run away from home or debts or whatever it is. Some of these are not the most savory characters. Um, And in 1879, Virgil Earp is hired to be the deputy U.S. Marshal. And he comes to town and he's joined very quickly by his two younger brothers, Wyatt and Morgan. They are going to be joined eventually by even more brothers. Uh, James and Warren join them later. They don't take part in the shootout at the OK Corral, which is why they are not famous and they are not in the movie, Uh, but uh, they are there. And by 1881, by June of 1881, Virgil is the town marshal for Tombstone. So, you know, it's like the law. Yeah, it's sort of like um, they don't have a police force the way we might imagine today. So he's sort of, for lack of a better word, um, the town sort of policeman or sheriff, um, which is a term that's used more for counties as opposed to towns. But also he's been hired essentially by the federal government to help deal with some of what are considered federal crimes like smuggling tobacco and alcohol back and forth across the Mexican border. So this is a man who's been empowered by both the federal government and the local town to enforce and keep the laws. Um, there are a lot of names we're throwing around. We're going to try to break down some of the key players. We'll kind of break it down into sort of the law uh, and the cowboys. So Virgil Earp, for the uh, purposes of this podcast, is the law because at this point, right, he's got these two sort of law enforcement um, jobs. Um, the Earps are a big family. Um, they are originally, at the time that Virgil's born, he's born in Kentucky, but the family moves around a ton. There is Earp history sort of scattered all throughout the West and Midwest. Virgil um, gets into a situation when he's young that I find sort of heartbreaking and it really sort of shades to me, I think, his whole life. Um, At the age of around 16, he potentially elopes um, or maybe marries, hard to say how it definitely went down, but he gets a young bride 
quote unquote, Ellen pregnant. Um, so it's unclear if they're ever legally married, but by 16, he's certainly starting a family with Ellen. Um, they stay together for a year, but Virgil enlists in the Civil War when he's 18. So just to put this into context, a lot of the, the men involved with this are coming of age. They're teenagers coming of age during the Civil War. And a, a lot of, uh, several of the Earp brothers will go and fight or want to go fight. Um, so this is a big defining moment in their youth. Ellen is told that Virgil is killed in action. So she's told at 18, as she's got this baby, that, oh, your husband's been killed. Um, too bad. She's told this probably by her parents or possibly mm -hmm. some other city elders. And she's basically kind of pushed into another marriage that's just like, you have no other options, get married. Uh, Virgil comes back from the Civil War looking for his wife and his daughter and cannot find them because they have moved to Oregon. The story that I heard, so, okay, I heard that he, he's told something similar. That she's been, told yeah. that, he's, that he's died, and she, he is told that she and the daughter die. So they both go their separate ways, having no knowledge of each other, until very much later on in life. But sort of imagine, like, you know, you come back from the Civil War, and you think you're going to be reunited, and you're told that they're dead, or they're just gone. Yeah. Nobody can tell you what happened to them. And, you know, like... You think maybe yeah. they would have waited in the town you left them, and she's off in Oregon. Um, yeah. So it's not too surprising to me that as a very, very young Civil War vet, he just kind of bounces around. He's just looking for a better better life, and he is very close with his brother. So often whenever one Earp brother gets to a town and gets an opportunity, several more will join. And so they do a lot of this sort of bouncing around, but it's a family affair. They are together more often than not. They're very clannish. And in fact, Virgil's wife, Allie, is going to, she's a source for a lot of this. She kind of keeps a diary and writes a lot about this. She will butt up against the sort of clannish nature of the Earp family that kind of irks her and annoys her. So that's part of what's happening here. But he's going to get a job in Arizona and he move, him and Allie move uh, first to a different spot in Arizona. And he's got a bunch of jobs. He's doing pretty well for himself. And he hears that Tombstone might be the place to, to go. And his wife, Allie, doesn't want to go, but the rest of the Earps are coming. And so that's kind of how that's going to be. Um, they're joined by Morgan Earp, the young, one of the younger brothers. Yo Morgan Earp has sort of a sense of adventure. He's going to come down from Montana where he had been living. He doesn't really like the cold. And so Arizona seems to work out for him. Uh, he works as a messenger for Wells Fargo and is a deputy to his brother, Virgil. And they're all also going to come with their wives. And by wives, we're going to use that term very loosely. The legal nuances of this time are difficult to parse. And there weren't like yes. county courthouses to keep very good <laughs> records. And again, with that no. ratio of men to women, it was like, you got a lady, you lock it down in whatever way you can. And that didn't exactly. always mean a marriage. I want to mention too with Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo you, is really a big player in this as well, because Wells Fargo and some of the other business interests in the West, um, Wells Fargo is running messages and supplies and they're a shipping delivery company as well as a banking company. Um, they are going to be a big part of the push to bring more law to the West, because if mm -hmm. you've got your Wells Fargo wagon and you're transporting valuable goods and you keep getting held up by robbers, yeah. That's a problem. And so a lot of the um, kind of work opportunities that the ERPs will fall into are sort of either for Wells Fargo or adjacent to that. And Wells Fargo is pressuring the federal government to do more to protect their business interests because, you know, there's no way you can make money if you keep getting your coaches held up right. and robbed. And so it's it's 
interesting to me because it's an interesting sort of intersection of like business interests and kind of yeah, like as a country, we, we want to have like a very stable legal society, but really this is about Wells Fargo protecting their property. So the most famous brother is Wyatt. Yeah, you could do a whole, uh, Wyatt Earp. A whole episode on Wyatt Earp. You could do a whole episode on Wyatt Earp. He's fascinating. The mustache helps. He's got an epic. They all have facial hair. Like this is an age of like yeah. mustaches, but his mustache is just luxurious it like lounges over his lips it's really great um Wyatt was too young to enlist in the civil war he tried to join up more than once he has the only woman we know of that he was married to uh they marry when he's a teenager and she dies in childbirth so he's kind of got a heartbreak he has possibly a second marriage but by the time he shows up in tombstone he's got uh maybe his third wife her name is Maddie Blaylock uh and uh he follows his brothers out west he bounces around just like they do. Uh, he's been involved in Dodge City. He's kind of been a lawman in Kansas. And he has also seen more trouble with the law than any of his brothers. Um, so he kind of runs crazy after his first wife dies in childbirth. And uh, he gets a reputation uh, places like Dodge City and Deadwood before he comes to Tombstone with his brothers. And his reputation is certainly, this is a man who can handle a gun. He's a good shot, a quick shot. Um, but he's also, you know, while a lot of his other brothers are, you know, getting these sort of sheriffs and constable and night watchman things or, you know, working security for Wells Fargo, Wyatt's definitely the one that's getting into a little bit more trouble. And he's got a temper and he mm -hmm. is willing to get into trouble. He really makes... Um, you know, he's sort of the wild card uh, of the Earp brothers. And, um, of course, yes. he he really is the one who comes to Tombstone with the biggest reputation that precedes yes. him. Yes. And then there's Doc Holliday. His bestie. His bestie. Doc Holliday is another man with quite the reputation, both at the time and since. He's a gambler, a gunfighter. The reason he's called Doc is because he's a dentist. Uh, he's actually from Southern aristocracy. And the story goes that he had a bad love affair with like a cousin and it doesn't go very well. And so he's going to kind of run away and uh, he gets tuberculosis somewhere along the way, which is bad on your lungs and tuberculosis. Like you'll read about this at this time. And it's not a disease that kills you fast. It is a disease that's going to kill you, but it's going to take years to do it. And so you're going to be coughing and looking really terrible. And as it progresses, you obviously get worse. Um, and by this time, he has decided that he's basically going to die. And so he's going to die gambling and drinking. And so gambling is his primary source of income. Uh, and he has rescued Wyatt Earp from a bad situation in Texas, and they've become close pals. And so when Wyatt goes to Tombstone, Doc heads along with them. And does not, I should mention, look anywhere near as bad as uh, Val Kilmer plays him by this time. And in fact, actually, the Southwest actually helps his tuberculosis. The dry air sort of helps the um, inflammation and stuff in his lungs. Yeah, they definitely play up, as as is often the case in movies, sort of play up how how he will be closer to his end of life than what he's actually like in 1881. Um, but he he really would only, only ends up in Tombstone because Wyatt goes and encourages him to come and says, 
we're going to have op opportunities for you here. So these are the law, the lawmen, uh, kind of headed up by Virgil. It's essentially the ERPS plus doc. If you want to think about who's on one side of this gunfight, if you're unfamiliar with any of the movies and stuff we're talking about. Um, but again, when we say law, these are men who have been certainly skirting, I think, the area of what's legal, not legal, definitely when it comes to marriages, gambling, that kind of stuff. Now, the cowboys. Among the cowboys who are going to end up on the other side of this gunfight are two sets of brothers, along with a gentleman named Billy. So there's two sets of brothers and two Billies, so it gets a little confusing. There's Billy, Billy Claiborne, who is a heavy drinker and a hothead and a guy who just causes trouble. He's pals with two brothers, Ike and Billy Clanton. Uh, the Clantons are from Missouri. Their family moves to Arizona in 1877, so they've come a little ahead of the Earps. Um, Ike's in his 30s. He's a little bit older. Billy Clanton is 18 or 19 at this time. So there's a bit of an age gap. Ike's very protective of his little brother, Billy. Um, Ike's kind of known as the drunk, as the braggart, as the guy who's causing trouble. Billy's really kind of considered the good kid. He's more level-headed, uh, runs a little bit more closely aligned with the law. Um, so it's sort of, I think, the reverse of what often is the case where you've got the responsible older brother and the younger wild one. Billy's a little bit more chill. Their family, the Clanton family, has a ranch outside of town. So Tombstone is the, the city, for lack of a better term, right? It's where your businesses are. It's where you come in to conduct business and gamble and visit the ladies of questionable morals and all that good stuff. Um, but they actually live outside of town. They are not governed at the ranch by the laws of the town. They are governed rather by county law. And so um, they often don't really think that they need to um, do what the ERPs say because they're not tombstone residents. They live out on a mm -hmm. ranch. And you have to imagine for some of these ranchers who had come out right before the boom, all of a sudden this boomtown brings all these new people and all these new rules and all these new restrictions and new scrutiny perhaps to how you may have conducted your business before. So there's right. there's some tension here. Um, there's another set of brothers, Tom and Frank McLaurie. Um, they're uh, East Coasters, they're New Yorkers, who moved to Arizona and become very friendly with the Clantons. And they are similarly ranchers, um, uh, but mostly it seems as though the Clantons and the McLaurie's have a lot of combined business interests. So you've got the five of them sort of facing off against three ERPs plus Doc Holliday. Yes. And that's sort of the big key players. That, those are the key players. There's a couple of smaller. Um, there are definitely some other folks and we'll, we'll throw some other names, but these are sort of the main, the main participants. Those are the big guys. So part of these tensions are going to arise from some unexpected sources. One of them is like clan loyalties. The Earps are very clannish and close knit and the Clantons and McLowrys are very close knit uh, and sort of clannish. And so part of it is like they're staking out their turf and they're kind of um, sort of trying to size each other up. And the way that like this is generally described is that this like all these tensions sort of coalesce very fast. This is happening over the period of months. So these sort of two sides are sort of shadow boxing around each other. So there's also, um, it's possible there were fight over uh, fights over a, a woman. Um, one of the other lawmen in town who's questionably um, good at it is a guy named Johnny Behan. <laughs> Johnny Behan is not, uh, he is aligned with the Cowboys 
against the Earps. And part of the reason for that is him and Wyatt Earp are very quickly going to spar over a woman. Josephine Marcus was supposed to marry uh, Johnny Behan, but Johnny Behan was dragging his feet towards the altar, you know, and she just got a little annoyed with that. And so she's going to set her sights on Wyatt Earp. So it is also part of this is they're fighting over like family stuff. They're fighting over a woman. Uh, and they're also sort of, there's various crimes happening. The cowboys are implicated in various crimes throughout the time that Earp is marshal, including horse and cattle theft and stagecoach robberies. Uh, Ike Clanton in particular seems to take no, um, need no provocation to threaten the Earps. He seems to take a very instant dislike, especially to Wyatt, and will threaten them at basically any time. Uh, Clanton's ranch is the center of like all these illegal activities, and it's Ike's father who owns the ranch that's sort of outside city limits. And you have to imagine, like, when we're talking about illegal, we're talking about, you know, cattle that sort of gets lost and then they're mm. selling. But people kind of, other ranchers, other people go, wait a second, that's definitely my cattle. That's my brand. That's, you know, so you've got that sort of thing happening. You have stage coaches that get held up and, you know, mass men that run off with goods. Um, and so it's one of those things that's very hard to pin down and say, yes, it's definitely these men committing all of these crimes. But if you're, say, Virgil Earp, and you're going, man, it seems like they're awfully connected or anytime something happens he casts a lot of suspicion towards them and the Clantons and McLaurys get pretty defensive about this and there is sort of this sense of like you insult one person in our posse you've insulted us all and that really escalates the situation and the Cowboys as I sort of mentioned are just resentful of this sort of growing influence of city folk as it were mm -hmm. over what they're doing and Johnny Behan really I think does not help this situation at all because as he becomes county sheriff, he sort of undermines Virgil Earp's authority in town. And so yes. you not only have sort of this warring, but you have a bit of this turf war of who is the law here and how far does the law go to enforce the law? Right. And then you have a, and also, oh, sorry. No, I also was going to say, and there's also at any one time, a lot of alcohol being consumed. Yeah. Um, Wyatt Earp is not a drinker. He's actually a lifelong teetotaler, uh, but everybody else is drinking all, the, all time. the time. So at any interaction, it is like a 70% chance that all or some of the participants have had quite a bit of adult beverages. So that's also like shading all of this. Um, he, they're going to, cowboys are going to accuse the Earps of bending the law where it benefits them and only enforcing it when it impacts the Cowboys, which is not, it should be said, a completely unfair charge. It, it's not. And of course, the laws around gambling and drinking and sort of kind of cavorting with women are a little different than the laws about cattle and horse ownership and, and smuggling um, across borders. But um, it does seem, as is often the case, right? Um, they're gonna look the other way when they benefits and are going yeah. to cast a heavier light where they don't. And then to sort of add a little fuel onto this fire, in April of 1881, there's enough like shooting out and crime happening in the town of Tombstone that they pass an ordinance, ordinance number nine. And the city council says that this law 
will require anyone entering town to deposit their weapons at a livery or saloon. So basically, if you're coming into town, unless you are making a very quick visit or heading out, you got to turn in your weapons. And this includes Bowie knives, dirks, pistols, rifles. Um, this is just an attempt to minimize the, I think, heavy alcohol consumption plus armed men, right? Like it's to try to make it a safer place for everyone. This ordinance is important though, because how it's enforced is maybe not always consistently fair because let's say you're a marshal or a deputy marshal or a sheriff or a deputy sheriff, this doesn't apply to you. You can still carry your weapons because you're the law um, and you may enforce it a little bit more heavily on someone you don't agree with. So this little ordinance is really going to play a big role in how we get to the actual gunfight, which the gunfight happens in October. So um, this is building up, as Rebecca sort of said, over months. Um, what ends up being 30 seconds of gunfire takes months and months and months of tension and rivalry and buildup. It's almost inevitable, I feel like, that something was going to have to give. Yes, it's like an earthquake. Like you can feel the like the earth getting tenser and tenser and tenser, and then finally it has to explode somewhere. So the day before, which would be October 25th, huh, uh, tensions have been high for a lot of reasons. Uh, it was a hot summer and people are annoyed. There's continued run-ins over stolen cattle and horses. There have been an uptick, it seems, in stagecoach robberies, escalating threats. The Clantons swear they saw Doc Holliday do something he shouldn't. Doc Holliday swears he saw the, you know, McLowry's do. It's all like very, they are continuing to um, snipe at each other, basically, verbally. Um, Ike Clanton and Tom McLowry drove, drive some cattle into town to sell. And an undercover detective from Wells Fargo hears another Wells Fargo agent say that Frank McLowry, Billy Clanton, and Billy Claiborne are going to come up to Tombstone to meet with these two guys and that this smells like trouble. Around midnight... Doc Holiday and midnight for Doc Holiday means the beginning of the night. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, midnight for Doc Holiday means he's been drinking steadily sure, sure. for several hours at this point. But yeah. at no point is he planning um, to wind down. <laughs> No, no, at no point is he planning to wind down. Um, he is going to spot Ike Clanton at the Alhambra Saloon and accuses him of lying about their past conversations. Wyatt and Morgan Earp are there. Morgan actually tries to calm everybody down by taking Holiday outside, and Ike kind of follows them. Virgil shows up, and he's like the law, and he's going to threaten to arrest Holiday and Ike if they don't calm down. Which I think is sort of, you know, like even his own brother, or, you know, basically Doc Holiday's like a brother to him. It's like, look, everyone's yeah. got to cool it down. So Virgil, mm -hmm. I think it's an example of perhaps how he was, could be more cool-headed and level-headed in these situations. Um, but yes. of course, this doesn't stop the night. Um, Wyatt Earp's going to head over to the Oriental Saloon, and Ike's just going to follow them there. Ike just really seems to be itching for confrontation. Um, he's going to make some threats. Um, against Doc Holliday to Wyatt Earp at the Oriental Saloon. He's going to vow to confront Doc in the morning. And he says that he's tired of all the fighting talk. And he keeps saying, I will be ready for you in the morning. And then later, with his revolver in plain sight. So if you remember the ordinance, he's not supposed to be carrying his weapons. He was supposed to deposit them. Ike's going to say, you must not think I won't be after you all in the morning. So these are some heavy threats, although... This is the kind of threat that has been happening now for weeks and weeks and weeks. 
And it seems like um, Ike, and as best that we can tell, Ike has been up for like 48 hours almost at this point and drinking almost the entire time. So he's slurring his words. He's not making a whole bunch of sense. He seems very belligerent and is just kind of following them around, really itching for a fight. And what's strange about all of this is that Virgil kind of ends up playing poker with Ike Clanton, Tom McLauer, and a few other guys well into the morning hours, possibly to calm them down or distract them. I don't know, but that's sort of an odd little... um, yeah, they manage to sort, sort of peacefully. There's no no fist fights. There's no anything. But the thing is, these guys, everybody involved in this gunfight, really, the Earps, Doc Holliday, all the cowboys, everybody's up late. Most mm-hmm. most of these guys are not going to sleep or sleep very little. So as we're leading into the day of the gunfight, October 26th, you have men who, depending on you know what you believe, have been up for anywhere from... 24 to 48 to 50 hours. Some of them have been drinking very heavily through that time on both sides. And so Mm -hmm. um, as Dawn sort of breaks, the poker game ends. Um, The Earps and Doc Holliday, everyone goes back kind of to their homes and goes to sleep. Ike Clinton and Tom McLaurie have nowhere to go. They've not rented a room. Um, They were only going to come into town allegedly for a short amount of time. So they're kind of just wandering around drunk and ornery and having not slept. And a barkeeper with the name Boyle sees Ike Clanton outside the telegraph office. And he tells him like, you you are in bad shape, buddy. You need to go sleep this off. Um, the, you, you are not good and you're armed, which is not allowed, this is against the law. And Boyle is going to testify later that Clanton's making threats. Um, Earps and Holiday show themselves on the street so the ball would open, um, that you know he's like ready to get a fight going. And Boyle even goes to warn Wyatt Earp um, to let him know. Uh, he warns another deputy marshal named Andy to go warn Virgil about this. And Virgil kind of is not so concerned, probably because he saw Ike at the poker game and just seemed like, oh, he's drunk and whatever. And Virgil just kind of goes back to sleep. You know, he's like, well, you know, this is like any other threat, except that Ike doesn't go sleep it off. He doesn't go calm down anywhere and he doesn't leave town. Um, You know, he's picking up more weapons, some of which he deposited at some point, some of which he hasn't, but he's openly destroying weapons on the street and he's wandering around causing a scene. And as we get to 1 p.m., Um, Virgil and Morgan are ready. They're ready to disarm him. So Morgan's his deputy. uh, So the two of them as the law find Ike Clinton. And they're going to take away his guns. And depending on which witness account you believe, it is anywhere from a light scuffle to a full-on pistol whipping. So... This is this is a, a potentially very aggressive disarmament. And of course, try disarming a man who's been drinking for two days and hasn't slept mm-hmm. for two days. Right. And who's clearly like not Itchy. making a whole lot of sense at the best of times, but particularly now. And he's itching for a fight. He's itching for a confrontation. Which is ironic, given what happens later. Anyway, um, they take him to appear before the Justice of the Peace with Wyatt watching, while Virgil goes to find the Justice of the Peace. Wyatt serves as watchers. Witness would say that Wyatt threatened Ike. Quote, you cattle thieving son of a bee, and you know that I, I know that you're a cattle thieving son of a bitch. You've threatened my life enough, and you've got to fight. End quote. The justice, the uh, justice uh, of the peace is going to 
uh, fine Ike, $25, which is like $1,000 today, which is like um, pretty dear, I would imagine. Uh, and also court costs, which Ike reluctantly pays. Outside the courthouse, Wyatt runs into Tom McLowry and asks if he's healed or not, which is basically asking if you're armed. Healed means you have a, a rifle on you. And Tom says, Tom McLowry says that he's not armed despite the visible revolver. Uh, that's on his hip. Uh, witnesses then see Wyatt pistol whip Tom, leaving him bloody on the street. And by early afternoon, both Ike and Tom have had to see doctors because they've both been, they've both had head wounds. Neither has had a chance to sleep. They've been playing cards and drinking. And Ike is still visibly drunk. Like he has not slept it off. He has not slept. He has just continued to power through and continue to drink. And he keeps popping is... into saloons, getting drinks. Um, so yes. this is like really building to, you've got at least two guys who have already gotten into scuffles. You've got one who is just like not in his right mind, right? Exhaustion, yeah. drunkenness, all of it. Um, but more and more people in town are concerned. Um, everybody's yeah. sort of talking about this. Um, when Billy Clanton, uh, again, Ike's younger brother and Frank McGlory arrived to town, they head over to the Grand Hotel. They're going to get a drink. They're going to ideally deposit their weapons and, and hang out. And Doc Holliday is there and he informs them that both of their brothers have already been um, kind of beaten up by the Arabs. It's, it was sort of a warning, like, hey, don't don't try to start trouble. We're enforcing today. We're not going to let you carry your weapons. We're not going to let you cause any trouble. So Frank and Billy leave the Grand Hotel almost immediately. They go looking for Tom and Ike. Um, they should have left their weapons behind, but they do not deposit their weapons according to most sources. Um, and again, we have to go with a little grain of salt on all of this. It yes. gets a little confusing at this point in the afternoon because there's a lot of eyewitnesses around town who are going to give varying um, accounts of what happens, but some members of the cowboy gang are seen at the local hardware shop. Um, some of them are allegedly seen purchasing cartridges for their guns, mm -hmm. trying to buy additional weapons. Virgil will testify that he sees at least two members of this gang at the hardware store buying ammunition. And he goes to his office to pick up a double-barreled shotgun, which he will put under his coat. Um, it's October, it's windy, so he's wearing sort of a long overcoat. And he doesn't want to cause panic in town. Uh, if you're the marshal, you don't want people to freak out. But he's starting to yep. think that trouble is, is real. This is not just threats. And then Johnny Bayhan decides to get involved. <laughs> And you know, trying to be him so useless. You know, this, he's a sheriff, kind of. Kind of. He's going to try to, uh, he will allege that he tries to disarm the cowboys. He's friendly with yes. them. Um, certainly by witness accounts, he seems to encourage them to just get out of town, get out of here. Yes. You know, this is not, this is not worth your time and energy. And so there is some question about how ready these men were to leave town at the point that we get to this gunfight. Um, but, you know, a lot of these guys are going to tell Behan, we're not armed. I don't know what you're talking about. Weapons, what weapons? Um, we're, we're heading out. So um, Virgil decides enough is enough. I'm going to get these guys. I'm going to disarm them. We're going to get them out of town. But he's not going to do this alone. He's, of course, rounding up his brothers. Um, Wyatt has been named a special policeman, so he has been deputized as well by his brother. So they all have sort of the weight of the law behind them, uh, as does Doc Holliday. So all of them, four of them are going to get together. 
which seems a little convenient. Like all of a sudden they need a couple of deputies. And so they're going to just swear them in like on an emergency basis. I'm just saying it seems a little. It's convenient. Um, Virgil yes. is going to hand off the double barrel shotgun to Doc Holliday. Wyatt, uh, Doc also has a pistol on him. Wyatt Earp has a Smith & Wesson revolver. Virgil is potentially unarmed at this time. This is sort of a, a sort of question mark, but most people will say the only thing they see him ever have in his hands is Doc Holliday's walking stick when mm. he sort of trades the rifle for the walking stick. As the posses start to converge, Sheriff Johnny is going to come to Virgil Earp and warn him and say, don't go down there or down there or they will murder you. He basically says, don't go down. Um, and he sort of says, I've disarmed them. I've disarmed them, but also don't go down there. They're going to murder you. So it's a bit of mixed messaging here from Sheriff Johnny. And witnesses would say that Virgil states, I will not arrest them, but I will kill them on sight. So depending on maybe where you are in town, where you're seeing this happening, it might look as though the Earps are the aggressors. And it might look as though the Cowboys are gearing up for a fight. I think this is why it's so hard to parse what happens is people are seeing these gangs and posses and different postures in different places. And of course, mm -hmm. everyone has their own bias too about how they feel about the lawmen and the Cowboys. And it's also like, this is all ha also happening very fast. And there are a lot of people around because yeah. this has clearly gotten some yeah. attention. And it's the middle but of like, the after it's the afternoon. People are up and it's out. the middle of the day. Yes. And but once the shooting starts, spoiler alert, um, most of the people who say they witnessed this kind of duck for cover. Yeah. So there's not a lot of people who actually stick around when the shooting starts and they'll show up later and claim they saw it. But did they? And so this is where so I, I will say this and then I'll let Rebecca take the wheel. But like it blows my mind that this does not actually happen at the OK Corral. It does not. <laughs> And I get it because gunfight at Empty Lot on Fremont Street does not exactly have the catchy ring that you might want in a newspaper headline. Gunfight at corner of Fremont and 3rd is like not exactly it. So the OK Corral is actually on the opposite side of the block. It's like a street over. It's like around the corner, but they're nowhere near the, they're not really in front or at the OK Corral. Um, this gunfight will take place on Fremont Street between 3rd and 4th. So I just have to put that out there that like the OK Corral element of this is definitely fanciful. It is. Yeah, it's totally fanciful. It sounds, I guess it sounds better. Yeah. the It's in an empty lot basically. And at this point, all the testimony comes from participants and witnesses, and it all contradicts everything else. So what happens next, I think the most important thing is it's fast, it's physical, it's very hot and, and takes place in a very short amount of time. And the most likely scenario seems to be that the ERP crew, the ERP posse, approaches with their weapons mostly out of sight while the cowboys have theirs out. Yeah. So they've got their weapons, they're brandishing them. Virgil asks them to throw their hands up and says he's coming to disarm them. And when they, he does that, the cowboys all cock their weapons. Virgil yells, I don't mean that, or I don't want that. And that's when the, shot, the shots start happening. We don't know, no one knows who shoots first. It's impossible to, 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 to parse it out because everyone has a different accusation on who shot first. There are about 30, 30 shots are fired with, in about 30 seconds by between six and seven men. 
And there's a break in the shot, the shooting, like they shoot a little and then they stop and then they shoot a little bit more. Uh, so there's, it's all very confusing as far as who's shooting and when and where. And imagine and, hearing, even if you were a witness, imagine hearing 30 shots go off in about 30 seconds at this time when mm -hmm. you might have a six shooter, you know, like this was not, we were not quite to the machine gun era, right? Yeah. Or, you yeah. know, that sort of thing. So, I mean, people say they witness this, but as Rebecca said, people are ducking and getting out of the way because this is not, you know, two guys facing off and they're each gonna fire a shot. This is a massive blast of gunfire that goes off. And the two, like the cowboys that survive this, survive it because they run away. So Ike Clanton, for all of his, like, bluster and drunken... Two days like, of wandering around drunk and making threats just leading up to this, let alone months of threatening before. He is immediately going to go up to Wyatt and grab him basically by his lapels and say he doesn't want to fight, and he ends up running away. Leaving his brother... So does Billy Claiborne, does the same thing, runs away. So now we've got the four, the three Earps and Doc Holliday, so the posse of four, against the two McLowrys and Billy Clanton. And the outcome is this. Both of the McLowrys and Billy Clanton are killed. Not immediately, but they all die within a couple hours. Uh, Tom dies just moments after the shots and most likely shot by Doc Holliday, who would later testify that he and Virgil, um, that he and Virgil thought that uh, Tom McLowry was armed. Frank is shot in the head, either by Morgan or Doc. Billy Clanton is in a great deal of pain. He kind of wanders away and dies a few hours later. They give him a bunch of morphine, but he spends his last hours um, yelling about how they have murdered me. And again, Billy's um, 18, 19 years yeah. old. He's the youngest of the men um, participating in this. So, you know, imagine you're a townsfolk and yeah. you see this poor, for lack of better, really a poor kid bleeding out, yeah. dying slowly and yelling about being murdered. And you didn't witness this. You weren't maybe on Fremont Street. You can imagine how immediately the sort of rumors and the, the myth and legends and all this misinformation starts to flow um, because... If I saw that happening, I can imagine what my reaction would have been. I would have been very concerned about this young man. Sure. And it also, the so because of this, because two of the cowboys run away and the other three are dead within a few hours, the stories that we're getting are from the Earps and Doc Holliday. So it is their testimony, by and large, that is what's going to propel this narrative. Virgil Earp is shot in his calf. Morgan Earp is struck uh, across both shoulder blades, a sort of grazed by a bullet. Uh, Doc is bruised but not really shot by a bullet and why it emerges unharmed. And I also would like to say, if you've seen the movie, there's a scene where Doc Holliday says, you're a daisy if you do. Apparently that's real. Actually, apparently a lot of the sort of more quotable utterances from that movie are real. So that's exciting to me. Anyway, <laughs> we'll get back to that in a minute. So you can imagine um, you've got three dead men you have two men who mm -hmm. fled. You have four lawmen who are hurt, but not badly at this point. And immediately, right, this is just a huge shock to the town of Tombstone. People take sides very quickly. People start very much saying, well, I saw this and I saw that. And people start disagreeing about what went down. The bodies of the three cowboys, the McLowry brothers and Billy Clanton, are displayed in the window of the undertaker, Ritter and Reams, with a sign 
murdered in the streets of Tombstone. So while there has not yet been any sort of like trial or investigation, the court of public opinion is already starting to sort of make its determination. And the funerals for these three cowboys are exceptionally well attended. About 300 people will march in the funeral procession and more than 2,000 come out to watch. So about a third of the town is going to come out to mourn or pay their respects to these three young men. And so what you sort of have is on the town level, a lot of the everyday town folk are really sympathetic to these poor young men, but newspapers, their reporting seems to heavily favor the lawmen. Um, one, because they're the four that walk away and they're willing mm -hmm. to talk about their experiences. Um, business interests favor the lawmen because they see this as taking care of criminals. And uh, so you've sort of got the split between the everyday people and sort of the newspapers and the businesses. Um, the coroner's report is ultimately going to indicate that likely the lawman's version of this is closer to truth than not because of the positioning of the bullet wounds and that sort of thing. However, there's enough sort of outcry from the town that there's gonna definitely start to be um, some legal action. I Clinton, four days later, the man who fled, the man who really started this by being nothing but trouble, files murder charges against the Earps and Doc on behalf of his brother. And so four days later, he kind of comes out of his hole and he's gonna charge them with murder. Virgil and Morgan are recovering because back then, even a minor bullet uh, wound had a chance of infection, right? So that's kind of your biggest mm -hmm. risk back then. So they're recovering, so they're not arrested, but Doc um, Holiday and Wyatt Earp are. And the bail is $10,000, which today would be about 300K. It's real yeah. money. And their bail is paid by local business owners who really appreciate what these men have done. As far as sort of the moneyed interests of town, what these men are doing is just getting the scum off the street, right? Getting rid of the problem of these sort of thieves and smugglers. And so um, once bail is paid, they decide that there will be a hearing to determine whether or not to indict these men on murder charges. And the justice is a guy named Justice Spicer, which um, leads us to being known as the Spicer hearings. This is the sort of closest thing to a trial um, that we will have when it comes to the gunfight. Spicer takes his job pretty seriously. He's not going to rush to judgment. He's going to take a month to collect testimony, which is challenging because the more people he talks to, the more confusing it gets. I can only imagine how confusing this must have you been You know, everybody has an opinion. You've got people who say they were there that weren't. The two living cowboy survivors obviously have very different versions than the four lawmen. And so Spicer does, I think, truly his due diligence. But the more evidence you gather, the more confusing it becomes. And Johnny, Sheriff Johnny Behan, is really going to be sort of the star witness for the cowboys because they figure, all right, he's the law. And he's yeah. going to tell a version that's going to support us. And he does. He gets on the stand and he says the cowboys all had their hands up. They had their coats mm -hmm. open to show that they were unarmed. And he says they were heading out of town. This is all likely not particularly true. The coroner's report does not back any of this up. But you can imagine the county sheriff gets on the stand and says this. All of a sudden now, even some of the newspapers and that public opinion is turning against the Earps. Um, other witnesses for the prosecution are going to say that Ike Clinton and Tom McLaurie were bullied 
all day long by the ERPs. They're going to talk about the sort of rough disarmament. They're going to talk about how the ERPs are sort of following them around town and hassling them. And there is certainly some evidence that there are clashes between these groups in the days leading up and certainly the day of this gunfight. And so this doesn't look very good either. However, there will be three somewhat considered unbiased witnesses that will give the testimony that ultimately sways Spicer to what will be his um, ultimate uh, judgment on this. I should also mention Ike Clinton actually testifies too, and he goes on for ages about basically airs all sorts of grievances and uh, discredits himself. Um, he is, it takes four days to sort of parse out his testimony. The prosecution like thinks he's going to be the star witness. And then essentially like Ike Clinton review reveals himself to be a fool and a liar and a coward. And so his, he basically contradicts his entire testimony. So Ike Clinton is really not great. And truthfully, for Justice Spicer, he's going to take anything the Cowboys or the lawmen say with a grain of salt. He's mostly mm -hmm. swayed by a railroad engineer, a female dressmaker, and a local probate judge. So the engineer is new to town, literally just shows up like the day before. And he says he sees Virgil, the, the marshal, approaching peacefully with only a walking stick in his hands and that the Cowboys shoot first. So Spicer goes, okay, this guy has no reason to really care one way or the other. A female dressmaker who uh, has a shop right there on Fremont is going to say the Cowboys had their guns out, but that everyone was shooting at everyone. So it would be impossible to parse whether or not somebody was shooting in self-defense or someone was aggressing. And then the local probate judge um, is going to corroborate both of these accounts. And so Spicer is going to have to parse through all of this. And he ultimately rules that Virgil Earp, as the lawman in town, acted within his office, and there was not enough evidence to indict. However, he does not condone the actions of Virgil Earp. He criticizes his sort of deputizing Wyatt and Doc, which we sort of agree is a little, yeah. a little yep. questionable. Yep. Um, he also thinks that this escalates beyond what is reasonable. But Spicer ultimately says that the testimony supporting the Cowboys is illogical. Uh, it doesn't match up. It's contradictory. And ultimately, that leaves them to believe that they are more likely giving the untrue testimony. So the, the sort of kind of takeaway for a lot of people is that, well, the Earps and Doc Holliday were either acting within the law or they get away with it. But that's sort of the yes. end of the story, right? They're not going to go to jail. They're not going to be charged with murder. But it really doesn't end here. And there's so much sort of tragedy that's associated with this and how it really tears the town apart. It really does. And it really spools out over the next few months. And this is why the movie is so confusing because it's impossible to compress all of this into like two hours. Um, the Spicer, the judge, receives threats in the mail. Uh, the Tombstone mayor has his stagecoach attacked a couple weeks later. Uh, on December 28th, 1881, Virgil, so the oldest, is going to be ambushed by three unknown men and permanent, they shoot at him and they're going to permanently damage his arm. Um, Ike Clint hat is found at the scene, though, Suspicious. which seems bad. 
things get worse. On March 18th, so just a couple months later, Morgan Earp is assassinated while playing pool with Wyatt uh, and a few other men. So Morgan is good, the youngest of them is going to die in Tombstone. And then Wyatt kind of goes on a vigilante run, him and Doc Holliday and a couple other guys, uh, some very, two men whose nicknames are great, uh, Turkey Creek Jack Johnson and Texas Jack Vermillion, which are amazing nicknames. Oh my gosh. Uh, the number of cool, the, movie, the number of people with cool names we had to trim to try to make this fit something close to an oh hour was tough. Tough. And so in the movie, they're portrayed as being old men. They were not. They were in their early 30s. In fact, neither of them actually lived to see 40. Good times. Um, and there's just there's a lot of tragedy all around. Billy Claiborne is killed outside a saloon. Ike Clanton is killed while stealing cattle. Doc Holliday a couple of years later dies of tuberculosis. Like he go, ends up, him and Wyatt kind of have a fight and they kind of go their separate ways. They meet up again later on, um, but I, uh, Doc Holliday is going to go into like a sanitarium uh, and dies six years after the shootout. And let me just say the fact uh, that Ike Clanton is caught stealing cattle and then resists, he resists arrest, which is why he's, he's shot um, in the middle of all this, just leads credence to the fact that he probably was committing these crimes and behind some of these other attacks. This is clearly a man who thinks he's above the law. So got to throw that out yes. there. Virgil um, faces numerous attacks, but manages to live. He moves a couple different places, California. He ends up back in Nevada. Um, he's, despite the use of only one arm, he is a, uh, a marshal again later on in life. And he is eventually going to be reunited with his young daughter. Um, so they, they kind of reunite and he will take trips up to Oregon where she has settled uh, and is buried in Oregon to be near her uh, so that they kind of reunite later in life, which is just a delightful end. And this is a man, uh, I should say, I mean, he really, throughout the rest of his life, there are going to be mysterious bullets whizzing by his head. There are going to be shifty figures, no matter where he goes and where he lives. So he really is, and I, I think there's credence to this idea that he's sort of hunted. Um, and there's people who have a bone mm -hmm. to pick with him. Um, and he's yes. lucky to live as long as he does, all things considered. But there certainly does seem to be a target on Virgil's back for the rest of his life. Because um, there's And Ali sticks with him. <laughs> And apparently something about the Earp men, like the, the women that they they fall in love with, like stick with them. Allie sticks with him. And Wyatt is going to abandon the woman he had been in Tombstone with, uh, Maddie Blaylock, his second or third wife, possibly. Uh, and she is eventually going to die of a laudanum addiction. Uh, so she's an opiate an addict. But he is going to basically abandon her. And he goes and hooks up with Josephine Marquez, who is um, the woman that him and Johnny Behan have been fighting over. Uh, they move around a lot, but they're together for 47 years. They're, he's the longest lived of any of the gunfight participants and dies at the age of 80 in Los Angeles. He's actually buried outside of uh, San Francisco. Uh, today. Um, in the pop culture, the there's a this a, has hit the pop culture often and hard. Um, it was reprint. It was printed in the local newspaper one month after the event. The gunfight at the OK Corral. So this has always been a big deal. It is kind of the the sort of most famous shootout in Wild West history. And the irony is it's sort of at the end of these sort of epic shootouts. Maybe that's why it's so famous because it's kind of at the tail end of this sort of um, very significant gunfights. Um, do you want to talk about the 1957 movie? Yeah. So <laughs> it's sort of fascinating, like the, the way in which this captures 
sort of the public's imagination, it really does inspire just like, I mean, if you read sort of these Western serials and books from the late 1800s, early 1900s, that, you know, and it's because the people associated are of note, right? Doc Holliday and the Earps. Um, so it keeps getting sort of brought up and brought up and brought up. The very first film to capture this is 1932. So pretty early into sort of, <laughs> the dawn of sort of Hollywood, there's a film called Law and Order with Walter Houston. Um, and this is the first movie to try to depict the gunfight. Um, I have not seen it, but by all accounts, it's not anywhere close to historically accurate. Um, 1957 though, is sort of the big movie that really solidifies everybody around the idea that this was the gunfight at the OK Corral. Um, and it's a movie with Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster. Um, it really, um, I think, leans into sort of the myth of this more than the reality. It definitely sort of casts um, the Earps as very much these uncomplicated good guys, um, which is sort of like not exactly maybe the way it goes. Um, it also has, these guys are way too old to be playing the characters that they're playing um, at the time. Uh, in 1959, two years later, which is sort of the height of the TV Western. So at this point, there are about two dozen cowboy Western shows airing on TV in 1959, and at least six of them featured Wyatt Earp or were connected to Wyatt Earp in some way. So that's how like prevalent this sort of is in kind of public memory. And I do think if you're like, like our generation, Westerns are not as big a genre and as a big a part of the culture, but truly 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, mm -hmm. I mean, for film, for TV, for, for books, um, this is a, just a huge thing. And this keeps coming back up, this sort of gunfight. And of yeah. course, when you've got someone like Wyatt Earp who lives long enough to sort of tell his tale to a new generation uh, and is mm -hmm. able, he writes out a map of where everybody is and he sort of like will give these accounts and he'll consult on some early Westerns and kind of give his account to that. So it's not surprising that there's sort of a bent towards that version of the events. Yes. Um, and the 1993 movie with Kurt Kirk Russell, uh, Kurt Russell and um, Doc, uh, Val Kilmer, a lot of the real quotes that Val Kilmer gives, which we all thought were like, like him adding flair, like I'm your Huckleberry. That apparently was a saying that Doc Holliday would say all the time. When Virgil gets injured and he tells his wife he's still got one arm to hug her with, that is exactly what he said in real life. So they get a lot of the really interesting details correct, which I think is great. Um, and this, it, the reason the movie, I think, fails is because it's just, they can't, you can't compress something like this into like two hours. It just doesn't work out. It's really uh, tough. But, um, but I do think yeah. in terms of historical accuracy and with an event like this accuracy, we have to be loose with that sort of idea. Term, yeah. But I think they really put in the work to research this, to try to depict the complications of this. Um, if you watch, and we'll include this in the show notes, just the actual clip of the gunfight itself, you can see that confusion, right? Is that a mm -hmm. gun? Is this, are they, are they going to put their hands up? You can sort of get a sense of how complicated it was yeah. to parse out what was happening. And once the shots fire, it's almost, you cannot tell who's shooting at who and who's shooting what. And so that's the whole other thing about trying to have a murder charge is it's complicated to know whose bullet hits who uh, in most of these cases. Right. They don't have modern forensics that can like do the bullet things and all the, yeah, all that stuff. Um, they don't have that at all. And certainly not in a like silver mining uh, boomtown in Arizona. Like that's just not a thing. And I should say, finally, you can go visit 
tombstone. And you can visit the OK Corral and they reenact the gunfights multiple times a day. Which did not actually take place. Yes. And they actually do. They 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 reenact it as it were on Fremont Street, but you call it the the OK Corral and everything. But you can go and you can see the reenactment if you want. If this is not something we often can say for things we talk about on the podcast. There's no daily reenactment of the Lincoln assassination, but there is one of the gunfight at the Okay, Corral. Okay, Corral. I love it. So um, we'll put a few links in the show notes there as well. But I really do encourage you. I'm going to go and, and rewatch the gunfight at the Okay, Corral, the 57 movie at some point, because uh, doing this made me want to really reevaluate that film. But I do recommend, if you haven't seen Tombstone, the 1993 film, uh, I think it's well worth a revisit. So but yes. thank you to Kevin for suggesting this topic. It was super fun to dig into. Uh, I love, and we talk about this all the time on the podcast, sort of getting into that like morally gray area, um, especially with the West. You know, it's easy to do the white hat, black hat, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. And here it's it's an unfortunate situation that results from tension, rivalry, alcohol. I think a, a very masculine culture of the West yes. that kind of treasures violence over sort of peaceful reconciliation. Um, And so it doesn't just happen because there's good guys and bad guys. It happens because of a lot of different factors that overlap. Agree. I agree. This was a lot of fun to dig into, uh, and I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. And uh, we will be back in May. Well, our patrons will get our May or our April patron episode in a couple of days, uh, but we'll be back in May with uh, some really cool topics, including something for Memorial Day. So uh, get yourself ready for that. Thank you guys, as always, for coming along with us, and uh, we will talk to you next time. Bye, guys. Thank Bye. you.